Please join with me and listen to the prayer of illumination. <clears throat> Living God, help us so to hear your holy word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do, through Christ our Lord. Amen. The first reading this morning from Scripture from the Old Testament is Psalm 116, verses 12 through 19, which you will find on page 553 of the Pew Bibles if you wish to follow along. Psalm 116, verses 12 through 19. What shall I return to the Lord for his bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful ones. O oh Lord, I am your servant the child of your serving girl, you have loosed my bonds. I will offer you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in, the, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. Our second lesson comes from Second Corinthians, reading from the ninth chapter, verses six through fifteen. This is on page. 1056 in your pew Bible, if you wish to follow along. Writing to the church at Corinth, Paul says, The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that by always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. <clears throat> the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
This passage of scripture we just read and listened to, I think is one of the most insightful, one of the most instructive, one of the potentially most transformational of all passages found in the scriptures. For many years it has taught and touched me, and I think about it quite frequently as I make my way through life. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. It's one of the churches he established. It's probably his most conflicted, most problematic church. I won't go into all the details of the problems there in the church at Corinth. But Paul spent a lot of time dealing with the issues he he found there. He wrote them at least four letters. We only have two still in existence. We call them 1st and 2nd Corinthians. If we were more accurate, we would call them 2nd and 4th Corinthians because we know that there were other letters that didn't survive uh, the, the generations. But we pretty much know what Paul was writing about in those letters because how he has responded in the letters that are still existing. And he is writing to the church at Corinth because he wants to receive from them an offering which they had earlier committed to that would benefit their suffering brothers and sisters in Christ back in the mother church in Jerusalem. And after Paul visited with the Corinthians, he wanted to collect that offering so that he could take it to Jerusalem on his next visit and present it to the people in need there. These words contain a philosophy, a truth, a principle, whatever you want to call it, that too few of us recognize or apply in our own lives. If you have your Bibles here, you might want to underscore 2 Corinthians 9, 6 just to remind you of it from time to time. Because there he says, the point is this. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. There it is. That's the principle. The truth. The philosophy. What do you think about this as a principle for godly living? I suppose most of you would nod your heads and say, yes, that's a good uh, good principle, uh, preacher. But I'm not going to let you off the hook that easy. Uh, because it has a context. Those words of Paul in the first century, just as they have a context today, because Paul was trying to encourage generosity by the Corinthian church, reminding them not just, it wasn't about money, it was about their life. If they wanted a life, a bountiful life of blessing, then it was an incumbent upon them to be giving Christians, giving to those in need, especially those back in the mother church. And so I'm hopeful that today's worship will inspire some of us at least to be a bit more thoughtful and generous and benevolent in our giving because I'm convinced that if we do that, we will reap the benefits. So I'm not really concerned about what you think about this principle. It's easy to have a high opinion about principle, uh, but principles can be... Uh, evaded. They're vague and they're abstract. Principles can be admired in theory and denied in practice. Principles can be applauded in public but denied in private. You know, if a person ever says to you, well, I agree with you in principle, you better get ready, right? (laughs) They're getting ready to attack the relevance or the merit uh, or the wisdom of whatever it is you are espousing. So I'm not concerned that you agree in principle with what Paul is saying here. What I am concerned about is when you get down to specifics. When you put this principle, this truth, this philosophy beside your own life, beside your own giving, what does it reveal? 
Has there been sparse sowing in your life or bountiful sowing? And what have been the results of either? Charles Schultz's Peanuts comic strip uh, that I find myself quoting probably more often than any other comic strip throughout my ministry, but there was one episode or a cartoon in which uh, Lucy and Charlie Brown are walking down the street with uh, Snoopy, the little dog walking beside them. And Lucy is pontificating, as she typically does, and so she says to Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown, there's one thing you have to learn in life. You get, what you, it, uh, you get out of life what you put into it. No more, no less. And as they walk away, Snoopy is thinking to himself, I'd kind of like to see a little more margin for error. <laughs> and wouldn't we all? Because these words, if we're honest with ourselves, can be disturbing and threatening. When we look about back on our own lives, what do we find there? What is an honest assessment of our relationships, of our life, of our living and our giving reveal? Are there relationships that broke apart, maybe with a spouse or a business partner or a colleague somehow? And if we're honest, we may be able to admit to ourselves that maybe there was some sparse sowing there. We didn't invest as much as ourselves as we could have to ensure the success of that enterprise, of that relationship, whatever it may have been. We can see it in our education. Some students learn all they need to do in order to just to get by, to pass the course, but they really don't invest themselves in the topic or in the subject. They're not really concerned with how that information can be translated into a better life and a better effectiveness in whatever career they, they choose. And the same holds true for our life in the faith, our life in the church. Maybe our life in the church has not been that rewarding. But we need to ask, how much have we really invested of ourselves in the church, in our devotional life, in our reading of scripture, in our service in God's kingdom? Was there sparse sowing and hence sparse reaping? Or did we sow bountifully and experience rich rewards in the process. So many people in the church and in life, they want the dividends, but they're not willing to make the investment. The noted psychotherapist Alfred Adler of this past century wrote one time that the failure of most people in life in the last analysis grows out of their inability to accept the fact that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. What do you think about that? It's not original with Adler. Jesus said that more than 2,000 years ago. And that too, more blessed to give than receive, is a great principle, right? Few people would argue with the principle, but when you get down to specifics in your life and in mine, have we spent more time and energy getting or giving? Most people work second jobs. They work late at night so that they can get more and gain more and acquire more, more of those things that will eventually disappear anyway. But how many of us spend that kind of time and energy and effort to figure out how can I give more to the church, to the community, to the world? We seldom put in that kind of effort when it comes to giving as when it comes to receiving. Now, when Paul is writing Corinthians, he's not simply trying to extract money out of them. He abhors the idea, says as much. He's interested in their life. He wants them to experience a blessed life through generous living, a bountiful life through bountiful sowing. 
An extensive survey was done some years ago. I don't remember the exact date, but I remember reading the study. It was about what motivated people to give in the Presbyterian Church. And what the takers of the survey didn't realize was that they wanted to compare those who gave a little to those who gave a lot, what motivated them to give. So they divided the takers of the survey into those that gave less than 4% of their income from those who gave 10% or more of their income. And what did it reveal? They were given 10 choices as to what motivated them in, in, their, them in their giving. It shouldn't surprise us to learn that among those who gave the most, the number one motivation was a sense of gratitude for God's love and goodness in their lives. Whereas those who gave less, their primary motivation was a sense of obligation to support the work of the church. So much more is given when we give out of love and gratitude than what we give out of duty or obligation. I could talk to you all morning about the tithe and the history of the tithe and what that means, but if you don't reach the point where you see some, the tithe is something more than an odious duty or a burden, then you'll never really become a tither. You can only become a tither if you learn to give out of gratitude and love for what you've received in your life. Most of the churches I've served do their stewardship in the fall season of the year. There's something wonderful and refreshing about having your stewardship season coincide with the Lenten season. Because if you can't realize what God has done for you in the season of Lent, the likelihood is that you won't realize that at some other point. When you see the sacrifice God has made for your salvation and mine, maybe we will see how God acts. God so loved that he gave. He so loved that he gave. What is it that we love? And how is it reflected in our giving Robert Rodemeyer was an Episcopal priest who spent most of his career doing fund development for various organizations. He wrote one time that there are three different kinds of giving. There's grudge giving, there is duty giving, and there is thanksgiving. The first, grudge giving, comes from constraint. The second is a sense of obligation, your duty. But the third kind of giving, thanksgiving, comes out of a full heart. Nothing much is conveyed in grudge giving because the gift without the giver is bare. Something more is communicated in duty giving because after all, we do have a duty to give. It's not simply an option. God has commanded us to give. But there's no song there. There's no fulfillment there till you get to thanksgiving. Giving out of love and appreciation for what God has done for us. And so we come at last to what we might call spiritual giving or thanksgiving giving out of love and gratitude in light of God's grace, sowing bountifully and reaping bountifully, investing as much of yourself as you have to give to those causes and people and institutions that you cherish. If someone were to write a biography of your life after your death, what would they say about this person? You know, one of the things that biographers do is they go into a person's financial records they look at their checkbook stubs, their visa bills. Where is this person's heart? You can find that by examining where they spend their money. 
So as you prepare for tax season, you might just want to look at your giving records and what it indicates about you and your passions, your priorities, your commitments. What is it that you are really worshiping and serving? Is it your acquisitions? Is it your home, your cars? Does your love of your alma mater come first in your life? Where are your priorities and your passions? Jesus said not only a remarkable thing, but a revolutionary thing one time when he said, where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. Notice he didn't say where your heart is, your treasure would be. Where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be. Because you're going to be interested and committed to those things you give to. Your time, your talents, your treasures. So each of us in this season can assess our own giving, our own habits, and see what we may discover there. Paul appeals to the Corinthians to give out of love and joy. He's not trying to extract money from them. He really wants them to have a blessed life, but he knows that their own generosity will largely determine what kind of blessings they discover in their own days. This past month was a Black History Month in America, and there was a brief segment on TV that caught my attention because it was chronicling the life of someone who's been a heroine for me throughout the years. The first time I learned about her life was probably 30 years ago. She was still living then. Actually, she died at age 96 uh, in, in the mid-90s sometime. Her name was Marion Anderson. Some of you will remember her, the great American contralto singer. She grew up in the slums of Philadelphia. Her father peddled ice in the summer and then wood and cold in the winter to support his family as best he could. When Marion was three years old, he saved up and bought her a $3 violin from a secondhand music store because this little girl seemed to have a lot of talent. A few years later, they saved some more and they could purchase a secondhand piano for young Marion. <clears throat> well, her father died early in her life and her mother had to take on the task of raising the family. So she worked as a cleaning woman during the day and on weekends, she took in other people's washing and did their laundry for them. Later in her life, a reporter asked Marian Anderson what was the greatest moment in her life. What would it be? So many things to choose from. She could say, well, maybe it was uh, when I was invited to the White House to sing for King George and Queen Elizabeth. Maybe it's that time of triumphant concert tours across the continent or the time at the Mozart Festival when Conductor Arturo Toscanini said that a voice like hers came along but once in a century. Or when Jean Sibelius had written a piece of music just for her voice, maybe she'd mention that. Or maybe she'd say the greatest moment in her life was when she was invited back to her hometown of Philadelphia to receive the Bach Award for the person who had contributed the most to her hometown. Maybe it would be, it, it would be that evening in 1955 when she became the first African-American to be invited to sing at the Metropolitan Opera. Or it could have been that time in 1958 when President Eisenhower had named her a delegate to the United Nations. Or that moment perhaps back in 1939. She wanted to give an Easter concert, but she was denied use of Constitutional Hall because of her race. So Eleanor Roosevelt, the First Lady, intervened and said she could give the concert in front of the Lincoln Memorial which she did on Easter morning, 75,000 people in attendance. What's the greatest moment of your life, Marion? 
She thought about it for a while. You know what she said? She said, the greatest moment of my life came many years ago when I learned I was making enough money that I could go home and tell my mother, you don't have to take in washing anymore. You don't have to take in washing anymore. You see, somehow all those honors and accolades that come along don't measure up to what we can do out of love and gratitude for those we love. So, what will you be giving in the coming year? Some people say preachers ought not talk about money. It's getting away from the spiritual. Theologians like to call that hogwash. (laughs) If you read the Gospels, Jesus has as much or more to say about money than any other topic. The right and the wrong use of the resources entrusted to us. But I'm not really talking about your money this morning, just like Paul wasn't back in the first century. I'm talking about your life. What kind of life do you really want? A bountiful life of blessings? You can only find that through giving. Because it's true, whether we like it or not, whether we know it or not, whether we approve of it or not, but it's true, the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.